Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think on every project, when you're working with someone that really turns you on creatively, where suddenly you light up, that's the most exciting thing. I mean, I don't want to be the one master of the project and everything is my idea and I'm a control freak. I'm so happy when someone tops my joke or has a better idea for a scene. I'm thrilled when it's not my idea. I, I don't care. I feel like I'm just orchestrating a collaboration to get to the best piece of work. That's writer, producer, director Judd Apatow. For at least the last couple of decades, he's been one of the most inventive and prolific creators of comedy. He produced and directed the movies The 40 Year Old Virgin, Knocked Up, This Is 40 and The King of Staten Island. And as a producer, his films include Bridesmaids, the two Anchorman movies, and The Big Sick. His television work spans The Larry Sanders Show, Freaks and Geeks, Girls, and Crashing. So as you can tell, we had a rich mine of funny to explore. This is going to be great because you have created this empire of funny, and I know you've thought a lot about it. And I just want to hear from you your thoughts on what makes something funny. Exactly. What makes something funny? Do you know that when I think about how I learned what little I know about comedy, I always think about being really little on Long Island, and I would watch MASH every <laughs> single day, multiple times a day. It was on Day and night on Long Island in the 70s. It was already in repeats uh, in syndication while it was still on the air. And I always think, what did I make of MASH? I'm watching MASH at like nine years old. At nine. Nine, ten, eleven. And, and watching it like constantly, really enjoying it. But the show is so smart and it's so dark that I thought... <laughs> It must have really programmed my ethics, my way of looking at the world, compassion, dark humor as a way of dealing with, uh, you know, sometimes a very painful reality. Because I was watching All in the Family, MASH, of course, Odd Couple, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart. Those were the shows. Strong shows. And, and 
Larry Gelbart and Norman Lear, yeah. those were the people that... They revolutionized television. Yeah, and it was important, and but still hilarious. It had something to say, but was riotously funny. And that's always what I'm going for. You know, can I be human and real and also find a way to get giant laughs? <laughs> you, you know, I just, I've been trying to find out the answer to the question I asked you by finding out more about you. And I just last night at midnight realized that you had a master class. Yes, that's in that right. <laughs> master class series. So I've been trying to catch up since then. But there's some of the, your early stories about how you began concentrating on this at such an early age. What, what, how old were you when you knew you wanted to be funny for a living? Well, when I was really little, I was aware that my grandmother was friends with this amazing comedian named Toadie Fields. Oh, yeah. And she was riotously funny. But also within our family, everyone talked about her as if she was the most special person who ever lived. They just idolized her as a person, as a talent. And I think as a little kid, I just thought, wow, that, I guess that's a cool thing to be, a comedian. And she was a, you know, she was not a classically gorgeous woman. You know, she made fun of her appearance, but obviously she was like a beautiful person. And she sang and she was self-deprecating. And I think as a weird kid, I thought, oh, you could be like weird and have people like you. <laughs> <laughs> and you can make fun of how strange the world is and how unfair it is and you could flip everything and i remember i saw her do a comeback show she had diabetes and she had her leg amputated and uh. then she toured the country with her fake leg and talked about the diabetes and what wow. life was like with one leg and got standing ovations and i think as a 10 year old i just thought this is the coolest person I've ever seen. And I loved the Marx Brothers, in addition to all the TV. I was very into the Marx Brothers and Abbott and Costello. And then I would watch the stand-ups on Merv and Mike Douglas and yeah. Johnny. I became obsessed with them. And then Saturday Night Live came out. And as a kid, you know, when Saturday Night Live was big, I was, again, like 8, 9, 10, 11. So it, again, was programming my software when I was really little. Yeah. And, and now this, this struck me. You were watching comics when you were very young, when you were a teenager in a, a stand-up comedy club. Mm -mm. That, did, did I get it right that your mother took the job as a hostess to help you have a place to watch comics? Well, my parents got divorced and my mom moved to Southampton. And there was a club there called East End Comedy Club. And the guy that ran it, his name is Rick Messina, and he was the bartender at a restaurant my parents owned. So my mom was his boss, and then suddenly she's divorced, really needs money, and he hires her as a hostess. And my mom was a very you know upper-middle-class person. And so I always think, why would she take that job? What could they have paid her to seat people for a couple of hours at a comedy club. And I realized on some level, conscious or unconscious, she must have thought Judd would love this. And then that is where I got my first exposure to live comedy and what was happening in the modern comedy scene with people like Jay Leno and Paul Reiser and Paul Provenza and all the people I saw that summer when I was in high school. 
And this this amazed me. You wanted to get the goods from the comics themselves. You wanted to talk to them. So you wound up interviewing them on the radio. How did that work when you well, were 16? Yeah, we had a high school radio station. And my friend used to interview bands like R.E.M. And he would go to the city. And uh, and I thought that was so exciting. And one day he's like, you should try to interview comedians. So I interviewed Steve Allen. Oh, that's great. And he had a an album he was he had just released, which was phony phone calls he had done on the Steve Allen show. And it was like him and Jerry Lewis making phony phone calls to a deli or something like that. And so I went to the city and interviewed him. And then that was so fun. I was like, I think I'm going to like try to do a ton of these. So at about 15, 16, I just hunted everyone down that I loved. This was in the early 80s. So it was Seinfeld and Howard Stern, Jay Leno, Sandra Bernhardt. And I interviewed all the original writers from Saturday Night Live. So I interviewed about 50 people. And that's that really was my college education, to sit with people like Harold Ramis and say, how do you get in? How do you do it? Why do you do it? And yeah, I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> what, what kind of, at, that, at that age, what kind of questions did you ask them? Bad ones, I'm sure. <laughs> 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 not smart and not insightful questions. A lot of it was just their histories and what what you know what made you want to do this. But certain people were very helpful, like Jerry Seinfeld really talked about crafting jokes, and it was a very kind thing for him him to do. But he was he was young; he had been on the Tonight Show a bunch of times. It was way before the TV show, and he was just like a great person to give me that insight. When did you get the idea that as a stand-up comedian, you had to draw on the personal? You had to be—the more personal you, you were, the better you, you did. Mm-hmm. Where, where did that come from? I don't think I really understood that till I met Gary Shandling. Huh. I was trying to write jokes, and I think in my head I was trying to write just simple observational jokes and— when I met Gary, he was working on the Larry Sanders show pilot. I had written jokes for him for the Grammys when I was very young. But he talked about this show he was writing and how it was all about getting to the core of these people and digging deep and being so truthful and that it was about show business and ego and obstacles to love and the ways that people want success so badly that they become awful and... Uh, it was so interesting to hear him figure it out and read the scripts. And then later I joined the staff of the show and I would sit in rooms with Gary for whatever, five hours, eight hours as he figured out stories. And that was the big lesson to just watch him work through it. And they would be stories that somehow reflected things he had lived through. Yes, it would be. You know, he, he had, I always thought that Larry Sanders was a, a part of his personality that he was not proud of. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, Larry Sanders was the egomaniac, the succeed-at-all-costs person, the, the person who couldn't make real human connections because he was too obsessed with his own ego and success. And so it was almost like an exorcism of the part he was trying to kill in himself, almost like he was humiliating that part of himself <laughs> that he didn't want to actually be in him. But he always used to say, the difference between me and Larry Sanders is 
Larry Sanders couldn't write the Larry Sanders show. He wasn't self-aware enough. Yeah, so, so he was able to, he, he was able to stand outside himself, but the character couldn't. Exactly. This sounds very close to having an insight into writing characters, even though not every character in a play can have all of your characteristics. They'd all be the same person. Mm-hmm. What do you think you understand about creating a character and putting characters together in a movie? Well, I think the one thing I learned uh, over the years is just every single person who talks needs to be fully dimensionalized. So oh. If there's anything I'm proud of in, in some of the work is when someone doesn't have a lot to do in a movie, but you know exactly who they are and they kill and they're clear and funny and they're just alive in that moment. So, you know, people like Craig Robinson and knocked up as the doorman who won't let them in the nightclub because they're too old uh, for this hip nightclub. He just fully comes alive in this five minute sequence. And so I, 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 I think I learned from Gary that everyone has a facade. Everyone is trying to present themselves in a certain way to the world. And the facade is usually fake. It's not really how they're feeling. An insecure person might try to present as super cocky and confident. And Gary always used to say, it is very rare when people are completely honest and speak their truth. And when it happens, it's a huge deal. You know, you remind me what often occurs to me about what makes something funny is when the character doesn't realize it, but something from inside suddenly comes to the surface mm-hmm. that that isn't reckoned with up until that moment. It's like the, the truth pops out like a, yeah. a monster <laughs> and alien. <laughs> well, I mean, you, uh, you know, worked for a long time with one of my idols, Larry Gelbart, uh, who I got to know a, a little bit near the end of his life. I took him out to lunch with Phil Rosenthal a few times, and I, I always was so admired how strong he was forever, like his whole life. At the end of his life, he was writing some of the best stuff he he ever wrote. And I remember I went to his memorial service, and Mel Brooks got up, and he said, a lot of people ask me all the time, who is the funniest of everyone? And I always say, it was Larry, and I have a very high opinion of myself. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like Mel. (laughs) When you work on movies and series, you're collaborating with a lot of people. Is there something you've learned about collaboration that goes to work in those situations? I think that... uh, you know, you have to be very careful about who you're collaborating with, that yeah. you're, you have common goals and common sensibilities because a bad collaboration can really go south. Uh, I, I remember I, I was talking to Buck Henry at a film festival, and he said, the reason why I don't have a writing partner is because if they're not as funny as me, I hate them. And if they're funnier than me, I hate them. (laughs) 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 But uh, I think if you are in sync and have common goals, everyone has so much to offer. 
you know, when you have great people around you, you want to hear what they think. You want to know what experiences they've had that you can use in this. So if I'm making a movie, you know, with somebody, uh, you know, like Seth Rogen, when we would do movies like Knocked Up, he, you know, his ideas were so incredible. His improvisations were so funny. And, and you know, his punch-ups when he would help me, you know, were were just masterful. And, and it also brought out the best in me because he was making me laugh so much that the material was coming alive and he had a, a unique sensibility. And I think on every project, when you're working with someone that really turns you on creatively, where suddenly you light up and, and you, you feel like you understand and you get in flow on what you're trying to express. That's the most exciting thing. And I think that when you have great people around you, it's better. I mean, I don't want to be the one master of the project and everything is my idea and I'm a control freak. I'm so happy when someone tops my joke or has a better idea for a scene. I'm thrilled when it's not my idea. I, I don't care. I feel like I'm just orchestrating a collaboration to get to the best piece of work. You know, you remind me when you when you talked about it's important to have good collaborators, good people to, to, to work with in the first place. It's it's always been my experience that the studio wants to collaborate. Yes. <laughs> whether whether you think they're good collaborators or not. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's the whole game. It's can you find patrons and supporters who get what you're trying to do? And let you do it. Yeah, and it's, it, I mean, it took me a long time in my career to find those people. You know, I've made a lot of movies with Universal Studios because it's the same people for the last 16 years that I've done most of my movies with and we're just in sync and they're really funny and they're tough on me and they ask good questions. But I have worked for places where you get notes and they're not right. And you know it like, oh, this is the wrong note for what we're doing. And the person I'm talking to doesn't understand how to talk about this idea. I, I wanted to pull my hair out once. I got a list of notes several pages long about a screenplay and half the notes contradicted the other half of the yeah. notes because <laughs> it was some committee that was just putting in their notes. So I said, I said, I'd be glad to take your notes really seriously if you yeah. could decide beforehand what the notes are. <laughs> or you realize that the notes weren't even written by the person who's handing you the notes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> some mysterious other person. So they said, we, we've, we've complied with your request and we've decided to eliminate the ones that contradict others. <laughs> what a nice thing to do. <laughs> so what about when you're running, a, a, producing a, a movie, then you're the one who has to give notes. Yes. How I'm you, the jerk. Do you have, do you, do you have, do you have a te technique for that so it doesn't come off jerkish? I mean, that's a tough thing because we've had experiences where me and writers have worked on scripts for years, sometimes for a half a decade of conversations and notes, and we get there and something really special comes out of the collaboration. You know, The Big Sick is an example of that, the, the movie we did with Kamel Nanjiani and, and his wife Emily and Michael Showalter directed but other times we do that process and we never figure out how to fix the script. And we meet mm. for years and it doesn't happen and we just never figure it out. It's like a it's like a math equation and we just don't crack it. So I try to be open to 
new ideas. I try to be open to the fact that I may be wrong, but ultimately mm-hmm. I do have to judge whether or not I believe in my instinct about if something is working or not working. The Big Sick was a lovely screenplay and beautifully acted. And, and I'm wondering, was, was that an example of a good collaboration or did you just let it flow from them? Or what, how did, what, what was the mix there? It was a great collaboration because Kumail and Emily hadn't written a script before and they were very patient and they were very determined. And so when we were two, three years in and we still weren't close to making the movie and we would talk about how to improve the script, they would do the pass. A lot of people just give up. And Mm -hmm. I think that kind of fortitude is so important because we always thought no one's going to make this movie unless the script is a killer script. And so when we finally thought, yeah, this script is great, and then we went out to get financing, we, you know, we were able to get enough to, to get it done. And then it played at Sundance and screened and had a big sale uh, to Amazon, and everything worked out. But it only worked out because they were open, obviously endlessly imaginative and great, and they didn't give up and get frustrated. They mm. kept doing revisions for years And sometimes that's what it takes. It it has to bake for a while. When we come back from our break, Judd Apatow and I swap stories about how a good director can transform an actor's performance with sometimes very subtle suggestions. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit. With everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. 
This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Judd Apatow. When you're directing, how would you characterize your relationship with the actors? I try to think about what will serve them, and the thing that I've come to with most of it is time. I feel like sometimes actors don't know how many shots they're going to get. How many takes am I going to get? How rushed are we on this set right now? Hmm. And I try to create a space where they know they're not rushed, that we're going to play and we're going to find it together. And I'm not going to suddenly scream, we're moving on. <laughs> you know, I'm going to walk <laughs> up to you and say, did you get what you were trying, you know, did you get across what you were trying to do? Is there anything you think we need to do before we move on? And, there's something about creating uh, a set that doesn't feel super rushed, that's very respectful of the actors and what it takes for them to get there, that seems to lead to way better work. And, you know, you remind me, I worked with a director who I love, and he knows I love him. But he said to me before we shot the first day, he says, I want you to be comfortable. What do you like, one take or two? <laughs> And you said? <laughs> About 20. Yeah. <laughs> but I only ever got two. Oh, how many How many do you generally like to have? You know, I find that sometimes it gets better and better yeah. the more you do it. Sure. You start to forget about the technical requirements. Am I, am I in focus? Am yes. I in the light? Yeah. Is this the right line? Yeah. You know, and, and all of a sudden it starts to happen by itself. It's a little, I think partly it may be because of my my early life in the theater where you rehearse it over and over and over again and then you do it night after night mm -hmm. and it becomes second nature and when it becomes second nature the acting falls away often if, if you're lucky how is it on a marriage story i love your performance in that movie it is so hilarious <laughs> well, thank I, you. I i think that is the funniest character and situation and it is some of the greatest work of your career oh. I, I couldn't love it more i love that movie as well but how was that and working with noah like how did it come noah to that was wonderful to work with because noah did what i think is really essential in a good director he you know he's getting everything that's happening if something's happening and it's very subtle and the director says, I need more energy. <laughs> but the energy is there. It's just at a different voltage, you know? Yeah. <laughs> then it's a, it's a little discouraging. But he, he was sensitive to what was happening. And as each take progressed, he could build on it with you. How do you handle that when the scene starts to get stiff and dead? Do you have, do you have a way to bring it back to life? It's funny, we were doing a scene in New York for this TV show I did called Crashing with Pete Holmes, and it was this big s scene where him and his girlfriend break up in the middle of the street of New York and, like, screaming at each other in the middle of the street. It was so exciting to be in New York on McDougal Street having this, like, terrible fight. And I just find when, when, when the actors feel like you believe in them, suddenly sparks just fly. I remember the first time I ever directed, I directed the Larry Sanders show, an episode, and I never asked to direct. Just one day, Gary said, you're doing the next one. And I was terrified. I had no preparation as a person. I, I'd never taken an acting class. <laughs> I didn't read books on directing. So I went home and I read 
David Mamet's book on directing. That's all I had one night to read some of David Mamet's book. And David Mamet's theory is very minimalistic. You know, he's, he's all like, get out of the way, make sure everyone hits their marks and holds their prop in the right direction. I mean, it's very <laughs> much about it's the, the words. But one thing he said that was so helpful was uh, that if you give a tiny adjustment to an actor, the entire performance will change. So if you just say, I think you'd maybe be like a, a hair sadder. He, he said, every choice they make will now be different. I've seen that. I wrote a play, and one of the actors was not getting the part. I talked about it with the director, and the next day, yeah. he was the guy deep down to his shoes. And I said to the director, what, what did you say to him? Did you work hard with him about this? I mean, it's so vastly different. He said, I told him to think of himself as a little more French. <laughs> I, that is that funny thing where like some people will say when i did this part i tried to think of myself as a gorilla you know like <laughs> like but sometimes that does work right just like some weird energetic thing or <laughs> yeah, an essence right. changes your behavior in some way uh and i never studied any of that so for me I assume the actors know what they're doing, and I, I try to get out of the way and just make it so comfortable, and people find weird new grooves. I get the impression you work with a lot of people you've worked with before, and I assume that one reason is, first of all, because they're good, you want to work with them again, but you may have a shorthand with them now, a familiarity, that makes the, that, that greases the collaboration. I think with certain people, you just realize, wow, we really are in sync. And so you want to take advantage of that. And sometimes you do a movie with somebody and you think, I've only scratched the surface of what they're capable of doing. And it would be fun to spend more time with them to do a bigger part or a bigger story. And we've definitely had that experience where certain people, uh, really blossomed as we worked together a bunch of of times and everyone's all you meet someone and you didn't know them and they just come and crush i remember working with john lithgow and albert brooks on this is 40 and you know for me i'm i'm always afraid to hire people who uh have an enormous amount of experience <laughs> you know i like i like i like a kid like i can't believe i'm in show business and and so it's hard to even acknowledge that anyone uh, of note would want to collaborate with me. So I, I tend to kind of lean towards people who, who it's their first experiences. But Albert Brooks was so brilliant. And the night before every scene, he would email me incredible joke ideas for the scenes. Oh, that's great. And then John Lithgow, I mean, John's like a, just a, he's the master class. Yeah. He's terrific. I, I mean, he, he really helped create that father character and, I just loved watching his professionalism because he just needed nothing. You'd say, John, we're ready. And he would just pop up and he would do his thing and it was always great and he was so thoughtful. And then cut, he would sit down, pick up his book and just sit in his chair and read some <laughs> novel. And just he was just the easiest person to deal with, but the work was so special and he was so kind to everyone that it really was a lesson of, oh, this is how you're supposed to behave in this world. I felt I had discovered something on MASH that the closer you get to the other people, the more you can socialize. 
the more stuff will happen between you and you're on camera. But you have to have people who are willing to do mm -hmm. that. I tried to do it on one movie, and an actress said to me, I have nothing in common with these people. <laughs> I don't want to eat with these people. <laughs> Did you ever see them eat? <laughs> but it is true, because then you're, you're suddenly you're at dinner, and you talk about a scene, and someone just says the funniest thing or the most helpful thing. And it, it happens just because you're just chatting about it in a non-stressful place. Uh, I remember when we did Freaks and Geeks, we just noticed there was some tension between the kids who played the geeks. And we just started writing to it and paying attention to how they treated each other. And, and they loved it, too. And so we just like tuned in to what their actual dynamics were. I wish we had more time, but we always end every show with seven quick questions, roughly associated with communication. First one is, what do you wish you really understood? Lately, I'm trying to make an effort to be open to religion more, mm. because there was no religion in my family when I was a kid. We just never talked about it. No one was even like, it's BS or... It's great. No one mentioned it ever. We never went to temple. I wasn't bar mitzvah. It was just like, ah. Eh. It really left like a, a hole there. But I think the idea of being open to something else or something magical or something that we don't understand is really hard for me to get to. And so I'm trying now to, to, to read a lot of things that I would never have read before with an open mind. That's really interesting. It's question number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> How do you tell them? Uh, I don't know. You go on Google and you humiliate them. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> don't you love it when people have their facts wrong and it's so easy to prove them wrong? Is there anything better than that? <laughs> uh, I mean, it really depends on... The setting uh, and you know what you're talking about and who it is and, doesn't and how yeah. do we? I mean, this is the issue. And if you ever want to see them again, exactly. I mean, this is what the nation is dealing with, which is: are there any agreed upon facts? Yeah, about yeah, any right. subject. What are facts now? And so you know, and, and everyone's very vague. Well, I saw a thing that proves there's no global warming, <laughs> and you're like, really? What was that? I don't know. I'll find it. <laughs> so you can't even argue with anybody. Okay, next one. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question? <laughs> mm, I, don't, I don't have one. What does that mean that I don't know a good strange question? It means you accept everybody's question as valid. That, that is probably true. <laughs> it, shows how, it shows how good the person you are. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's go to the next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? That's a great question, because I do have a friend who never stops talking. And <laughs> if I bump do? into him somewhere, he'll go 20 minutes without me saying a word. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you just have to, you just have to, like, wait for them to take a breath. And then you have to, like, discuss an appointment that you have that you're about to be late to. You have to be willing to walk away while they're still talking. Like, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. Mm -hmm. How do you start up a genuine conversation? You know, I'm trying to get better at that because I have many stories of locking up. 
I mean, I, I am not the person that can be trusted to go somewhere and uh, be as chatty and entertaining, you know, as you would think. Like sometimes people will invite me to dinner and they think, oh, he's going to be the funny clown at the table. <laughs> you know, we're having this dinner party, then Judd will be the funny one. And then I don't talk for two hours. I yeah. just, and I've been at those dinners sometimes with people that, that you really respect. Like, oh my God, I'm at this dinner and Jack Nicholson is here. That happened once. And what I do is go mute and it doesn't make any sense. It's just my anxiety. I remember I sat next to Penelope Cruz at this Oscar dinner. And I literally just, I didn't know what to say. Yeah, I was just scared the whole time. I'm like, so, so what is the main export in Spain? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it happens to a, a lot of people. I remember the story about Richard Nixon, whose car was being driven through an intersection that had been an accident and a policeman was lying bleeding on the ground. Mm -hmm. And Nixon got out of the car in a moment of real generosity, went over to him and sat with him for a few minutes, but didn't know what to say to him and finally <laughs> said, uh, do you love your job? <laughs> I relate to Nixon. <laughs> <Yeah>. Who knew? <laughs> okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? Well, comedy is a very hard, hard profession for confidence because the success of your previous project means nothing to the current project. Mm -hmm. Every, everything you do is an experiment that might fail. I mean, we're kind of like baseball players where if you get one hit out of three, you're very successful. People do assume you're going to fail a majority of the time. And so you want to be confident, but in a way you really don't know if the joke will get a laugh. You know, you show your movie at a movie theater. Yet sometimes you test it, you bring in 300 people and you just go, Oh God, I hope they laugh. I don't know if they will laugh. Sometimes you show the movie to your friends and you'll get 30 people in a room and they laugh at all these jokes and you're like, okay, that's where the laughs are. And then a month later you'll get like 300 people who aren't your friends. They're just normal people. And they don't laugh at any of the jokes that your friends laughed at. They yeah. laugh at completely different jokes. So uh, it, that's also what I like about comedy is it's not crackable. Every mm. single time you're feeling your way in the dark. And one of the most fun nights I had is I went to the uh, Museum of Television and Radio and I watched you and John Cleese talk about comedy. Like why people laugh and the psychological reasons and the surprise turn. And, and I just watched you guys and you were both so brilliant. And I just thought, I don't have any game talking about that. Like the actual reasons why we laugh and what it does to like your mind. And, uh, but you guys seem to know why people laugh psychologically. I don't know. The thing is, I wonder if you had an analytic answer to the question why do people laugh if you'd be any better able to make people laugh yeah probably not yeah i don't it is comedy is definitely one of those things where it just it does die on the operating table <laughs> yeah, right. if i think about why did anyone laugh at like steve crow getting his chest waxed in the 40 year old version yeah, i right. can't tell you why that's funny and not just gross or annoying or irritating like why was that funny why did it make people you know, delighted. Why did people crack up versus, eh, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, last question. 
What book changed your life? What book changed my life? Well, the you know, I was writing with Owen Wilson and he recommended this book. It was called A Fan's Notes by Frederick Exley. And it was a book from the 60s, semi-autobiographical, about a guy who went to college with Frank Gifford, the football player. And he compared his whole life to how Frank Gifford was doing. So he was an alcoholic English teacher and having a terrible time. And Frank Gifford just kept winning championships and going pro. And the style of writing was so funny and so gritty and real and dark. I think it was the first time I realized that balance between comedy and drama that I was hoping to achieve. It made me realize I was probably holding back from expressing my deepest feelings, the stuff you don't want to share with people because it's too messed up. And that had a big uh, effect on me. And it's a great novel for those looking for a book, A Fan's Notes by Frederick Exley. Great. Thank you for a really interesting conversation. I I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. Well, thank you. This was a pleasure. I owe an enormous amount of my success to you and watching your brilliance, your writing and directing and acting, and I'm very thankful for having that experience that my life timed out perfectly with all of your career. Well, you couldn't be kinder, and I you, you leave me flummoxed. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, take care. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. You can catch up with Judd Apatow's stellar career as writer, director, producer, and actor on his website, juddapatow.com. And he reprises his early career as a stand-up comedian in a Netflix special called Judd Apatow. The Return. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Davis Sobel. She's brought the history of astronomy to vivid life in books like Galileo's Daughter, The Planets, and A More Perfect Heaven. Her most recent book is The Glass Universe, an account of how a group of women at Harvard in the 19th century helped discover what stars are made of. Wilhelmina Patton Stevens Fleming. Mrs. Fleming, as she was known around the observatory. She had taken the maid's job because she was really in distress. She was a recent immigrant from Scotland, 
She was pregnant. She was on her own. Pickering and his wife immediately realized that she was intelligent. She had taught school in Scotland. So they just moved her into the observatory and taught her how to do the work. But this was the first time people were using photographs of spectra to try to create a classification system for the stars. Is it known how many stars she categorized? At least 10,000. And she published that about 1890. Davis Sobel, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.